0: Welcome to the Community Development Podcast, a podcast dedicated to community development practice and approaches, sharing our learning and connecting the workforce. My name is Russell. Dave Smith up in Huddersfield, Yorkshire, north of England. How are you, Dave? Welcome to the podcast.
1: Uh, I'm very well, and thanks for having me, Russell.
0: You're based at, I think, the institution is called Heritage Key. It's attached to or affiliated to the University of Huddersfield. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, Heritage Key is the archive service for the university. So we are part of the uni, but we've also got a slightly separate public identity.
0: And you and I crossed paths back last year autumn in Liverpool and it was at the annual conference for CIC, a community interest company called Sporting Heritage. I was there in the capacity of a, sort of like a podcaster in residence just capturing some audio for different people who are taking part and just allowing them to explore and maybe delve a little bit deeper into the content or the presentations that they were talking about or their areas of expertise. And then obviously, you know, via a podcast medium, you can share that with people who aren't present at the, at the conference and maybe drag out a little bit of the legacy. You were there as a presenter, a presentation called Sharing the Rugby League Archive, and my ears pricked up, and cards on the table here, my ears pricked up when you use the term co-production. I tend to have this horrible habit of interrogating and probing and critiquing the use of certain terminologies that we use in community development quite a lot, and I'm not saying that they are ours forever and a day and no one else can use them, but I do tend to find myself critiquing the use of other people when it crops up in those dare I say sort of alien environments and I wasn't expecting to hear about co-production although there is a lot of talk about community and and identities and um, you know almost like the tribalism of of supporting sort of sports teams and a lot of that comes up but but maybe not the sort of the typical community development type lexicon but you used this term co-production didn't you?
1: I did yeah Um, which is probably interesting now when I think back on it because it's not necessarily a term that I used when I was doing the work, but it's a term that's used in academic circles. So talking at a conference, it felt like it was probably the right term to use for that audience.
0: And that's interesting, picking and choosing the language depending on the audience. I think as well, one of the reasons I'm I'm interested in capturing this for, for the Community podcast, I think also is that it, it straddles... What sporting heritage are trying to do, and they've got a little SoundCow page where you can find a lot of the podcasts I've recorded both at that conference, but also the preceding year, 2017, when we were uh, well just down the road from from where you are now in uh, we were in Bradford, and a lot of the same language is used from a very community perspective, but not necessarily from the institutional or the the academic or the the expert perspective. And uh, as I said, somebody is sort of pricked up. Do you, do you want to say a little bit more about what that particular project was looking to achieve?
1: Yeah, of course. So um, here at Heritage Key, we're very lucky to look after the Rugby Football League Archive. It was one of the first national sporting body archives that got put somewhere to be stored properly, looked after by archivists and made accessible. I, I came to work here at the university as part of a Heritage Lottery funded project to build a lovely shiny space, and to build some audiences around some of our collections. And the Rugby League collection was one of the bigger areas that was of interest, so it was named in our HLF bid to do some work with people who are interested in the history of Rugby League, to run events and activities and share stories. And in the bid, going back to talking about language, uh, some of this programming was supposed to be co-created with the audience. Uh, and this was a strand that ran through several of the things that I had to do. Yeah, so I spent about two and a half years doing activities and working with rugby league fans, historians, anybody that was interested really of in helping to do good stuff and try and be experimental and get people in through the door at a heritage key and look at collections and meet each other.
0: And I suppose in this context, I'll break it down and be a bit, maybe overly simplistic about it. but You're the heritage expert. You're the archivist. You're the person that you know knows how to kind of record and manage and perhaps even store in temperature-controlled environments and the like the materials. I think I remember you saying in your presentation that you didn't know a huge amount about rugby league, though.
1: I knew absolutely nothing about rugby league. I have to say. So I'm a, probably a football and cricket fan of anything. But what I am is somewhere in between an archivist and a member of the public. So my role quite often in in a professional context is to be, I like to say it's a professional idiot. So quite often I go and work somewhere and I don't know anything about the the topic or the theme that I'm going to be working with. So I've got to learn about it and then tell other people about it. So sometimes that involves sitting and reading a lot of books. But I always feel a much better way of working is to ask the people that do know about it and work with them to then share that knowledge with other people and this was a really true of the rugby league uh, bit of this project because I knew I knew nothing and Wikipedia can only tell you so much
0: yeah yeah I, rugby league's not a sport I know a huge amount about rugby union is the game in Wales where I'm from and if I'm honest when I was a kid growing up rugby league was that game that that poached our players, our best players. And I think what's interesting looking back and over time and the professionalisation of the rugby union is that the relations have, 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 have softened a little bit um, and actually you begin to see a little bit of the reason why some of the players moved north, um, to use the, the parlance. Uh, to the north of England because um, it provided job security but what's been fascinating has been there's some programs around how Rugby League was welcoming um, far more than Rugby Union was frankly to players of black ethnic minority mixed race backgrounds in in, in Cardiff for example or in, or in Newport Docks area for example and I think the views have sort of softened a little bit and I think one of the things that's come through with Rugby League and it was in one of the podcasts I recorded in Bradford at the 2017 conference with Professor Tony Collins I think Professor of Sport History and he was talking about Speedway and how incredibly close-knit that community of supporters is. And he was talking about how close-knit that was through generations. So grandparents in sports Speedway, so are the children and so are the grandchildren. And and he likened Rugby League a little bit to, to that as well. So I suppose they're the experts then. So you, you call yourself a professional idiot, which I, I I love as a term. And I think that applies to a, a more typical, perhaps, community development environment and and, and working experience and and practice. Um, They're then bringing the, I feel the professional idiot, they're the the, the amateur experts.
1: (laughs) Yeah, something like that. So the way the project worked was that I just sent out a lot of emails to people or phoned people or met people and said, this is my remit, we've got a budget, I don't know anything, would you come and help Come and meet four times a year. Be on email, and between us, we can work out what the good stories are and how I can then effectively deliver that content to people. But what was quite interesting, I think, over time was that some of those people who were coming to those meetings to talk about how to what what we should do also got involved in the delivery of those uh, events as well. So they would speak, they'd bring things along to display. And it became a lot more of a collegiate thing. And obviously over time I learned more and I did do research. So I, I kind of became an amateur expert after two years. But it was very much drawing on other people's knowledge and expertise. The people that I was working with, they were familiar faces. I'd see them at events every few months and, and when I bump into them now in different contexts, it's really nice because they feel like they're friends of the archive um, and then they're kind of part of our family.
0: To my like co-production, I think you can look at some of that. I mean, I so I encountered the term from a social care background and specifically, I guess, um, treatment of people with substance addictions. Mm-hmm. And it was how they themselves were designing their kind of pathway to you know, moving past their addiction to sobriety, however you want to, to, to describe it. And of course it wasn't just a, 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 a clinical, physiological aspect of, of, of addiction, it was also, and, and detox, it was also around uh, changing peer groups, it was around what to do with the time that wasn't spent chasing a fix. It was around finding new hobbies, re-engaging with old hobbies and, and so on. And there were different methodologies, for example, like an outcome star, it was them around those service users really shaping their their treatment in the in the broadest and, and in a much more holistic sense rather than experts just pointing the finger and telling them you know this is what you must do again i think there is a parallel with what you said there throwing yourself open as the in inverted commas expert or the professional Lydia, and sort of saying okay we're going to go on a journey together you don't just want you you do need for very fundamentally their their input and do you find that people were welcoming and receptive and accepting of that
1: Absolutely and very generous with their time and with their contacts because one thing that we did quite a lot was invite former players or people associated with the game to come and be part of our activities and we as an institution didn't necessarily have that kind of soft authority because we weren't from the game. So we were able to leverage some of that goodwill and that trust by working in this way we weren't necessarily saying we are the experts give us all of your contacts and all of your time because it just makes it easy for us we were saying this is a thing for all of us we happen to have the resource and the space and the, the archival content here but actually this is for you so you um, working with us is for the benefit of everybody and that felt quite a nice way of doing things and kind of go back to the language in the And the document that was my guide for what I had to do to fulfill the funding criteria and hit my targets. The term was co-creation, but I didn't really like the idea of calling the people involved co-creationists because that had very different connotations. (laughs) So I talked about them as programming groups. So my pitch to people was, we are programming activities. Come and help me program stuff like you would a festival. So it was a very light touch and hopefully a bit more accessible way of talking about it with audiences. But in actuality, there was that element, but also we were quite keen on capacity building as part of that. So we did do some training courses. And rugby league sports history, I think, probably got like a lot of sporting his, histories. There were lots of people doing it, but they don't necessarily know each other or, or have an opportunity to meet each other very often. So something I was quite keen on during our meetings where we were planning, but also during the events, was to create a space for a community of like-minded people to meet each other, make connections, and feel like they were part of a community which they maybe didn't feel like before. Uh, and that worked really nicely. Pe- you know, people did start to see each other every few months and, and make some connections. And I hope that long-term, if they're interested in project working or, or making links, they know that person now because of because we've enabled some of those connections
0: i'll edit in a a klaxon sound perhaps because you've used the same capacity building and again it's a term that you know we <laughs> use we use a lot and and, that, and that's absolutely fine because i think what you're what you're i think you're you're, you're demonstrating really really well is how you know, this is a process that involves people from the outset and that actually it's not just their capacity that's being built and i guess it's that that notion of reciprocity then is it your capacity, your understanding is is improving. Maybe then institutionally, whether it's university or whether it's heritage key or the collection or, 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 or whatever, is also then being increased. So the term co-production, I've got the webpage here from the Social Care Institute for Excellence. And again, it's, it's for me, it's what I always tend to go back to when issues of co-production are being discussed because that's the environment in which I learned or from which I first learned or first even heard, frankly, the, the term. And it it talks about there not being a single formula for co production, but being key features. And I quite like this, almost kind of like criteria. It needs to sort of tick these boxes rather than have one wordy and highbrow conceptual definition. And, And you've touched on a lot of these things already. So people who use services or co create, you know, Rugby League Archive and Heritage as assets with skills. So you wanted their expertise, you wanted their. Their passion clearly some of these people will probably have quite a forensic knowledge of of results and games and seasons and players appearance records i I, i'm guessing
1: there's definitely a strand of that in the sport yes
0: yeah break down the barriers between people who use services and professionals and again you know you're talking about creating new spaces you're talking about like i said very much kind of throwing yourself open and saying right come on people come and help me and i think there's, there's there's clearly that Building on people's existing capabilities, again, it's that knowledge, it's the skills. Did you have anybody, or indeed, do you have anybody, who might have a sort of a heritage background? Or
1: It was really mixed, actually. So, Tony Collins, he was a part of the group, so he was a professional expert to that degree. And also, he, he's got a long association with the game, so had some really good contacts. But then there was also some people working on funded heritage projects based in clubs, A good example of that was Bradford, their project officer there for their community project. She was a really enthusiastic member and really generous with her time and her contacts. And then the other end of that scale was people who were not even necessarily associated with a particular club, but were just really interested and wanted to be involved. So a mix. I did try and reach as many, at least professional or semi-professional clubs as possible, Partly as a gateway to the expertise then within those clubs, so they were both disseminating information to at their end, but also helping us with information at our end.
0: So there also seems to be a very much a notion of of mutuality in it all, in that there's a lot of people coming together from different perspectives, different backgrounds, different geographies, different localities, but they all have this shared interest in the league and working together to you know, to achieve, you know, in this instance, a, um, you know, an archive that's. That's interesting and stimulating and, and, and respective of respective of the sport and, and so on. How do you measure the outcomes of this if you're obligated to? Because I guess there's footfall and visitor numbers through to the archive and, and, and that sort of thing. But in terms of the, the actual engagement and involvement, what did they get out of it as individuals? Was that sort of stuff that was being tracked?
1: So there were three of these programming groups across the project there was also a music group and a local history group and we did do some uh, evaluation at the end of the project with some of those um, people probably there were less rugby league responders than some of the other programming groups so there's a bit less data to work with Uh, and I think some of that is as a result that some of the people involved had moved on to other positions or they weren't able to come to the event that we organized where we did some of that evaluation work. But what you can track from our qualitative data all the way through, from event attendances, from some of that feedback process, is that one of the key things was that sense of community. And also a sense that Heritage Key was a space that they were very comfortable coming to. Uh, I think like a lot of university campuses, and we are a campus university here, everything is in one space. People can feel reluctant to come onto campus and feel like they've got permission Mm. to come in. One of the achievements for me is for, for those people who will also be interested in coming and look at the archive for their own research, that they were able to feel like it was a place for them. And one or two people have been in touch since the project finished, just asking for a bit of advice because they're doing something and there's an archival dimension to it and they know we're really good people to ask advice for we're not strangers at the other end of the phone we're friendly faces that they know really well and that's been a real a really positive thing for us i think that we're we're seen as being a part of that community going forward into the future
0: i think you've touched on another example of the reciprocity there also i think again one of the other things that this um, social care institute for excellence talks about in terms of co-production is this this notion that the people themselves rather than be defined as service users or rugby league fans or visitors to a to a to a heritage collection or an archive is that they become agents for change themselves so if they're now going on and doing other things if they're now maybe you know collecting more or interrogating their own clubs preservation and and retention of materials and programs or whatever it might be then they themselves have moved on and they've had something out of the experience i think that's absolutely That's that's absolutely key, Um, so it's great to hear that people are still getting back in touch and I absolutely agree with your point around people need to feel that they can enter spaces, they can participate in particular spaces, particularly I think with with a lot of, again certainly working, traditionally working class communities, a lot of these public spaces where there was no expectation to pay, there was no fee levy to use, there were no very strict conditions to use, you know, libraries even, you know, a lot of these are now declining and, and and they're 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 less available, there's fewer of them, or fees are now beginning to be levied. And I think it's really key for spaces just where people can come, where maybe hierarchies and based on maybe you know, levels of professionalism or educational attainment or titles or letters after your name don't really matter within an archive environment. And this is something that's come through very much loud and clear through both of the sports and heritage conferences I've been to, is that they are very, very non-hierarchical. There, there's a, a, a much more of a principle of sort of egalitarianism in them is that well, we're all interested in this sport or this club or, or, or whatever it might be and I think that's really, really key. So it's, it's great that you've mentioned that.
1: Yeah, I think there's a, probably a tension in my mind looking back on the work because what we didn't necessarily do was attract a really vast audience of modern day rugby league fans who are interested in the history of the game. We never quite got that audience I think part of that is the short-termism that's involved in being a sporting fan. You're you're always more interested in the next or the last result on the next result than you are in a result from 70 years ago. But I think the benefit of that was that the attenders here tended to be those either co-producers that we were already working with or they were part of a wider network. So actually that sense of community was able to develop quite well because people were seeing each other semi-regularly in our context and in a context to share their knowledge and expertise as well as just looking at the nice archives. So although I would have loved another 2,000 people to come to my events over two years, um, we might have been a bit full, actually in terms of the co-production side it was great to have those people and and a kind of wider set who were all here, and one of the nice things was that some of the people that came to events were then able to join the co-production side because they they had that connection with us and they'd spoken to me and they knew a bit more about what we were about. There's a, a slight kind of quirk, I suppose, in doing that, in that I'm part of a team here. I'm not. I don't run the archive. I'm not even an archivist. But for for groups of our audiences, and rugby league is very much a part of this. I'm the person that they associate with here because we've built up that relationship over time.
0: I wouldn't disagree with you in terms of what you're saying about the majority of fans having that short-termism. I'm, I'm probably in the, I'm in the other group where I'm interested in the, you know the, the, the social history and maybe political cultural history related to, to certain sports. I guess my defence of that and and also I think where the value is of things like archives and trying to retain some of that community memory then and community history of in this case rugby league is that well actually. For the person who is a little bit more short-termist, and that's fine, there is only another game to look forward to because of the blood, sweat, tears, sacrifice in history gone into keeping a club going, keeping a club afloat. And a lot of grassroots community sport is incredibly reliant on, on voluntary effort. And I guess things like archives and heritage collections, they allow the opportunity should someone be interested, even if they aren't now, you know, they will maybe in one day to just cast the lights on some of that. And I think I think there's a parallel there again with the, the last podcast we did here with um, with Moses Dixon over in State University of New York, where he was talking about historically black colleges and universities. For him, it very much came through is that the history and the origins of these institutions is absolutely critical and, and incredibly relevant to today. The fact that there is a university that serves almost a largely, almost exclusively black Afro-Caribbean community is because people sacrificed... And made a huge amount of effort and engaged politically to get them set up in the first place. People didn't want these universities. And I think it's important to recognise, I think anyway, and, and people can pick and choose and, and have other views, of course, that that, that, that history, that heritage is, is kept. And, uh, you know, by the sounds of last, that's what you've been able to, to support people in, um, you know, in the rugby league community to do. So all Absolutely. credit to you.
1: Absolutely, and I think there's a you know a big group out there of people who are very passionate about this, and it's, and it's brilliant because they are keeping those stories alive, uh, particularly ones which are out of living memory, I think that's really important, and they are proactively doing that work in their context, which is really good. So if we were able to help them do that, to give them new ideas, or a little bit of reassurance of how they're doing things, or some guidance on how they were doing things or just those connections if they they could ask somebody else who's done it before, then that's, I'd be proud of that achievement.
0: And therein lies some of the the, the, the capacity building then that, that has happened. You've mentioned a couple of, of tensions. I think there's sometimes a, a desire to portray some of this work in a very linear fashion. This idea, we, we kind of got the funding, we got a few people together, we got started, we did stuff, we finished, we celebrated, we moved on. And I think it's not always that linear. There's always, there's often some sort of tensions and, and and things kind of crop up. I mean, did you did you find much of that?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think all of the programming groups, we did stuff that worked, we did stuff that didn't. I organized meetings where it was me and one other person in the room because everybody was busy. And that probably increased over time. So there was a lot more email dialogue than people sitting in a room having a conversation. But that's kind of probably all to be expected, I think. It didn't necessarily detract from the successes that we had. One of the other tensions for me is always, although I can be a professional idiot in the context of the knowledge about a collection or about a a place or a time, at least until I learn it, I do have expertise in the, the doing of the things. And that relationship, which is trying to Encourage people putting on events and the kind of events that can be done, whilst also honouring their interest in the history, that can be difficult, I think. And that's not confined to this part of the co production work. I think mean, that's across all community development, heritage work. It's, it's happened in lots of my previous roles. Finding that balance between giving people support to do really great stuff without forcing them to do what you want them to do. That's one of those hard areas, I think.
0: And so much of what you've talked about in a professional archivist, amateur, inverted commas, but expert fan environment, I think has a parallel with me in my background, I'm sure other practitioners listening to this, being that community development worker, working on an estate, working on an ex mining town or whatever it might be, being trained, having access to CPD, having experience in, in working in other areas rocking up in a location and, and not knowing that area, not knowing what's gone in the past, not knowing who the families are, not knowing who the people are. It is inherently tense. And I think, well, oh, not inherently tense, there are inherent tensions in that. And there will be, it will be a rocky road. And I think it's it's just really key to just recognise that that's how it's going to be. And I I think funders get that now. I'm not sure they always did. The podcast we did with John Rose from the, the Big Lottery in Wales um, back last year, uh, but four or five podcasts ago, you know, he very much recognised that, and that learning and that understanding is very much ingrained and inherent, or certainly increasingly so, within how they not just award grants, but then how they monitor them and how they stay engaged with applicants and indeed potential applicants, because the relationship and the dialogue starts before application. And I think that's a huge improvement. When I kind of started started out in this sort of work
1: and, and cut my teeth. Well, I think we were very lucky that the Heritage Lottery for our bid. They backed us to try some stuff and to take some risks. So not everything worked, and that was absolutely fine, because actually, learn from it. And the advantage of doing that in a co-produced way was that there were people I could talk to and say, well, okay, so we had that thing, it didn't work, so what should we do? How can we do it differently next time? What should we try? Um, And it wasn't just me sitting in a room on my own trying to figure out... Um, I had a really good example of that, actually. the very beginning, there was a piece of the project which the co-production group weren't necessarily involved in, in the plan. And they weren't involved in practice in the end either, which is about running family workshops. And in our initial proposal, the idea was that they'd be linked to home games. Huddersfield have got a... Uh, top flight super league uh, rugby league team and as soon as I sat down to figure out how that might work in practice it seemed like it was going to be awkward because games can be changed at the last minute we're not next to the stadium and I my feeling was this was something that was just wasn't going to be possible and luckily I had a group of people who were inside the game um, not necessarily families and I could sit down with them and say okay so I've got this problem do you think it's worth bothering and like they all said no for these reasons but I had them to help me reassure me back me up as kind of critical friends and it was about an area that they'd not signed up for but they were still there for me which was really really helpful.
0: I think it's an interesting example of possibly even a power dynamic there is that people are being invested with a degree of authority and power to say actually Dave, that's not a great idea. And courteously giving you the, the, the reasons why. And I think, again, part of co-production is around trying to have more models of, of, of shared power. So it's not the clinician, it's not the clinical expert, it's not the GP, it's not the community development work, it's not the archive expert sort of saying, this is what we are going to do. It's pretty much, as you said, in, in, within the, the opening few minutes of this, is, okay, what do you, What should we do? What do you want me to do? Are we going to work together? And I think, uh, I think that, that, again, that mutual... Mutualism I think, is, is, is a, a really prominent aspect of this work, and, and as I said, all, all, all credit to you. Dave, if people are interested in this, wanting to know a little bit more about it, where should they go, how should they keep in touch? What are your, your social media channels?
1: Heritage underscore Key on Twitter and Instagram, although you won't find much content on there at the moment. Um, you can find us on Facebook as well. And if people are interested in our sporting collections, they can go to heritagekey.org uh, and look at our catalogue there. Um, And that's going to be a really nice uh, area of development for us. We've just taken on a new sporting archive, England Netball. And we're really looking forward to working with England Netball and their volunteers, who are the experts, on ways that we can share that collection. And we don't necessarily have the funding anymore, but we can still be that support. We can be the professional experts, event organisers or kind of ideas factories to say, have you thought about this? we can support you to do this.
0: Excellent. Best luck with that. Best luck with your other work. And it'd uh, be great to keep in touch. I'm, I, I would dearly wish our paths cross again at another maybe Sporting Heritage conference. Um, I'm probably not at liberty to say where that is possibly going to be <laughs> later this year, but put it this way, it will involve far less travel than the previous two have done for me, all being well. And um, and if you're at that, that would be, be good to, to catch up with you then. And once again, Dave, thank you very much.
1: Yeah, thank you very much.